0: Acts chapter 16, if you have your Bible, we are flying our way through this uh, narrative of the early church. If you're a first-time visitor, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. And so you're kind of catching us in mid-story of what God is doing, saving sinners and then creating his church. And as it goes around the world, we get to take a glimpse and then make some kind of connections between what he did then and what he's doing now. And so that's our our plan today. I told you last week... um, we got a big job ahead of us to try to deal with the bulk of chapter 16, and I'm not certain that's a good idea, but nevertheless, we're going to have to endure it. Um, as I read through this week, I, I, I bet I counted a minimum of five potential different individual studies we could do together on this text, and yet we're not doing it. We're doing one, and so I've kind of synthesized chapter 16 into one title. It's a bucket. I want you to put everything I say into so you know where it fits in our world, and I'm calling this chapter The Life the life of a Disciple, okay, because what we encounter in this chapter is Paul and Silas, and we'll see a young man named Timothy and even Luke in just a little bit, how out on, a, on the missionary trail, and the actions... And, and, and the experiences that they have are not not unique just to a disciple, uh, uh, like an apostle. They're, they're what God calls all disciples too. So what I want to try to do is, as opposed to just reading this narrative about them and sa- somehow putting them in a classification of super saint, that means you don't have to relate or have to respond. I'm trying to tell you that this is what a disciple looks like. This is what we do. If you call yourself a Christian. Before we dig in, let me just ask you some questions that might sift your soul a little bit. And uh, so we'll have a place for all this information to land. How often do you really think about being a disciple of Jesus? I mean, I know when I say that, you don't argue like, oh, yeah, that's true. But how often do you think about it? When you wake up in the morning, you put your feet on the floor and you go, today, I get to be a disciple of Jesus. Does that happen? Or do you wait for somebody to tell you that? And, and to be honest, how clear do you think you understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Like, are you certain you know what particulars are a part of that, that calling and that title? Could you tell anybody else with precision what it means? Is it something as simple as, all you have to do is believe in Jesus that makes you a disciple? Or is there more information to that, to that phrase? Hopefully after today, it'll be a little bit clearer. We'll throw some things. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive discussion about what it means to be a disciple, but what we're going to see in the life and the times of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke is that there are things that they do, things that they experience that are going to be true of disciples, and that's where we're going to put it in. And this understanding of these, I call them the great lessons of what it's like to follow the king, okay? So let me give you seven lessons that I get from this text. Here's lesson number one, if you're making notes. The life of a disciple always includes other people, always. Verses 1 through 5, let let me set this up in context so you know where we've been. If you haven't been through this study so far, last week we looked at this uh, beginning, what looked like a great, wonderful, repeat missionary tour of the churches that Paul and Barnabas started, only to find out that Barnabas wanted to bring this guy named John Mark, and John Mark had failed him on the first trip, and so Paul wanted nothing to do with him. We had a big split. These two godly men go in different directions. And so Barnabas sets sail for Cyprus, the island, and he goes off the pages of history. We never see him again, really. And Paul, now he heads on this second tour, and he kind of goes north and ends up going west, and we'll see that in a little bit. That's where we pick up the story, chapter 16, verse 1. It says here, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, that is Timothy. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance of the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Now, this obviously goes back to last week, chapter 15, this Jerusalem council that decided what it meant to be saved, Jesus plus nothing, okay? So that was the good news they were going out to tell. Verse five, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Okay, let's just deal with a story here. Timothy, a young man. Many writers would say he's a really young man, like an early like a young teenager. That's who he is, okay? Believing mother, unbelieving father, and he comes to Christ somewhere in Paul's first missionary journey. There are some writers who suggest that, that Timothy and Paul have a very similar kind of sort of direction in their conversion. If you remember where Paul was converted, it was on the road to Damascus. But the event that preceded that road to Damascus was him giving hearty approval to the execution of Stephen by stoning. Remember? So in Paul's mind was the, the, was the thought about, oh my gosh, this man looked to heaven, praised the Lord, wasn't, wasn't afraid of anything. And somehow I think that image of Stephen's death and how he died was kind of, I think, sifting through Paul's mind when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Many would suggest that in chapter 14, when Paul is being stoned in Lystra, not unto death, but at least being stoned and thrown in the garbage heap to die, that young Timothy was watching. And he was observing the same kinds of things. And I think there, there was a connection in his mind that, that uh, at least that they're sharing a, a similarity. Who knows? But anyway, Timothy comes to Christ. And it's clear that God is working in Tim's life because he's got a great reputation with the saints in, in uh, Lystra. So Paul goes to Lystra to get Timothy, take him on a trip, and what we see here kind of, if you were here last week for the chapter 15 study, sounds a little weird because Timothy's now, I guess, looks being led to be circumcised. And if you go back to 15, the whole argument was about was there something else you need to do but believe in Christ, and the particular issue was circumcision. And so the Jerusalem council, the elders and the apostles, decided, no, no, it's Jesus alone. So why is Timothy now being circumcised after that big defense of freedom in chapter 15? Sounds a little bit like, if you're not familiar, like Paul, who argued for grace alone, is totally collapsed on the issue, like something else is driving him. But that's not the case. Here's what's going on with this particular event for Timothy. He was obviously from the text clear that he was Greek and Jew, and him being uncircumcised, any kind of Jewish Group That he'd run into, men, women, children, whatever, who knew he was uncircumcised, that would be a hurdle to the communication about the gospel, the good news. And so, so Timothy, by his own choosing, by his own willingness, laid down his freedom and removed the obstacle from that, that potential. So, so this fits with what I said last week in talking about the response to getting grace alone. We're free. Christ alone is that it also frees us from, from feeling so like insecure about our freedoms that we can give them up willingly for others. So here's what Timothy does in this situation. He says, I don't want it to be a hurdle. Let's remove the hurdle so we can have ministry. And so so Timothy is circumcised. And the team of now Paul and Silas and Timothy head out to tell others about this wonderful free news that Jesus saves sinners simply by faith alone. Grace alone. That's what they go to tell. And the text says that many people are, are becoming converted. Now, that's the simplicity of the story. But there's something consistent here. Every time you see a Christian... Living out his life that I want you to see that's true of every disciple, and that is this. Paul's concern for the growth and the development of someone else in the faith. In this case, someone younger in the faith. Paul took it personal to disciple Timothy. So it's easy to read this, and I know I, know I used to do it. You look at Paul and go, well, he's an apostle. That's his job, right? Apostles disciple people. And he was probably super gifted at it. So the fact that he's doing that and I don't do it, there seems to be an excuse for that. But if that's what you're seeing here, you're missing it completely. What Paul does here is what every believer in Christ is called to do. It's what we're supposed to be about. Go and make disciples. And it's much more than just seeing them confess Christ. It's to teach them all that he commanded. Seeing them grow up in Christ. The word we use often, and you know it, is replication. Replicate. It's discipleship. It, it's give it away. Now, I understand we're dealing with a culture now. The American church culture has defined walking in faith and in a very distorted way, in my opinion. It's like almost every man for himself. Your faith is a private matter. It's your issue. You can do it on your own, and you're good to go. As long as you're sincere, you don't need anybody else. And that is not, not known in the Scriptures. That person doesn't exist. Okay. That is not true. Every believer needs to answer these questions. Who is your Paul? Who is your Timothy? Or let me say it another way. Who are you pouring into and who's pouring into you? That's just kind of the way it is for, for followers of Christ, right? Paul isn't, by the way, doing his job. He's living out the life of a Christian, which is true for every one of us in here who confess Christ. That's what we are to be about. True believer's life always includes other people. Now, by the way, before you interpret that like, you heard me say, okay, therefore, find me my Paul. You have just talked about mentorship. I need a mentor. I need one-on-one. That's not what I'm saying. Timothy was invited into a context of believers. According to the text, he was living in context before he left Lystra with a group of believers, right? And so now he joins Paul, he joins Silas, and in a minute you're gonna see he joins even Luke on this missionary journey. The point I'm trying to make is here, biblically, if we're being honest with the text, people are formed over time in the context of one another's. So if you have defined following Christ as your little private world, you're missing out at the only mechanism God has created for you to grow up into maturity, period. Being a disciple includes other people people. You can't deny it. You can say, I don't feel like it. I understand. You can say it's hard and expensive. I get it. I I understand that. You cannot say your version without others is good because the Bible doesn't know that. It always includes others, all right? So everyone, and you know this, according to what we've learned in Scripture, what we've been taught For years, is that everyone is shaped by everyone all the time. Strengths and weaknesses, right? The mature with the immature, the older with the younger. We put ourselves in context over time and God grows us up, right? Amen? So that's the first one. First lesson is the life of a disciple always includes others. Here's lesson number two the life of a disciple always includes God's leading. Verses 6 through 10. And they went to the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of of Jesus would not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here's Paul's story in short. Paul, I told you like last week, Type A, driven for mission. Man, he had a plan. I'm certain he had a journal somewhere. This is what we're going to do. And in his mind, we're going to kind of go north and kind of lean west. We're going to go over there, and I want to go left. I want to go down into, into Asia Minor, and we're going to minister the gospel there. And somehow the text says, Spirit said no. Paul says, okay, well, then let's go north and go east a little bit. We'll go to Bithynia. We'll go up there, and we'll do our ministry. Spirit said no. So if you're just good at directions, they're coming from the east. They've been prevented from going south. They've prevented from going north. What are they left with? West. You're very good. The Holy Spirit funneled Paul and this group of believers to go directly where he wanted to. And The text says they end up at Troas, which is on the kind of the coast of, of the Aegean Sea. And Paul has a dream, and the dream is about a man over Macedonia, over in Europe, going, come, help us, paraphrase, tell us about Jesus, come and lead us. Paul wakes up and concludes, well, that's where God wants us to go. We couldn't go south, we couldn't go north, and so we're supposed to go over to Macedonia, all right? Now, let me, let's deal with a question here. How, how did the Holy Spirit lead Paul? There's a pretty big stuff happening here. In fact, I would suggest to you the reason why you and I in the West know the gospel is because somehow Paul made it to Europe. So this is a big deal. It affects us all. So how how did the Holy Spirit lead Paul? Here's the answer. Just like he leads you and me. I want you to get this. You you can classify, Paul, whatever you want as some kind of super saint and think, well, it's great to have that kind of leadership in our life, to have the Holy Spirit direct us so particularly. I want you to know that same direction is ours. And here's how he moves us by, let me define it this way, by sense or by situations. There's a way, and you know this when I say it, there's a way that the Holy Spirit gives or removes a sense of peace when we're... Asking questions or making decisions, right? You know, like, Lord, should I be a part of this? And there's like this, either this urgency in your heart to do or maybe this resistance to be a part of it. Clearly, there's there's this sense of peace that, that is a part of it. And I think that was part of Paul's particular experience. But there's also this specific situation that he controls that makes his point about what we should do. All right? And it's interesting to speculate a little bit about what led Paul so precisely where he went. And I believe at least one of those ways is this ginormous situation issue for him because I want you to notice in verse 10 the change of pronouns. Now, this seems like a little bit too technical, but I want you to know how powerful this is. All the way through the very beginning of Acts, 15 chapters, Luke, the one who wrote this, is telling somebody else's story. In verse 10, suddenly the pronoun changes the first person. Luke's now in the story in, in verse 10. So Luke has been saying they and them all the way through this. And suddenly in verse 10, he goes, and we. And I think, some, uh, I think some writers have suggested that one of the reasons why that's so profound in this moment is, 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 and the Holy Spirit led in such a direct way is because Paul was sick. The reason why he couldn't go south to Asia, the reason why he couldn't go north, he wasn't feeling good. Hence, here comes Dr. Luke. Luke shows up, the physician. And by the way, he stays with Paul throughout the rest of his life. He's at his deathbed. So so Luke has played an important role in maybe propping up that thorn in the flesh that Paul has been dealing with in his ministry life, and here, here is Luke involved in it. Something specific, get this, as I'm too sick to go south. Now that's precise situational Holy Spirit leadership, wouldn't you agree? God controls those nuances, and here's what I want you to see. This is really big. However God leads you, you have to understand that God is faithful to do it. Like, he's involved in leading your life. As a disciple, he gets to determine where and when and how, doesn't he? That's, what, that's what's clear about following him. Sometimes you'll get this big, fat yes. Like, I like to ask things that have yes as a conclusion. Sometimes God says, absolutely, Tim, what, you, what you've asked for, you can have. But there's probably more than, than the yeses is no's. Like, No. You get no's. And sometimes you get now, and sometimes you get laters. Sometimes you get stays, and sometimes you get goes. Sometimes you get waits, right? That's how he leads us. Either way, I hope you get the point. Paul wasn't any different than you and I. He didn't have some extra special power available to him that's not available to you or I. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be led by his spirit. Watch this, watch this. It's to be pointed in his directions, listening to his voice and moving your feet to his directions. That's what it means to be a disciple. Pretty clear. So if you're one of those people who ever wonders what you should be doing or where you should be going, or if you make plans and they change on you, circumstances change on you, if you get frustrated by that whole process, I want you to understand what the wisest man who ever lived knew about God and His leadership: that man makes his plans, but God directs His steps. Proverbs sixteen: plan all you want, as long as you understand who who really leads you. Right? Okay. So that's that is lesson number two. Lesson number three: the life of a disciple always includes intentionality. Verses eleven through fourteen. So setting sail from Troas, we, there's Luke in the story now, made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia of the Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by by Paul. It is clear to me um, that Paul not only had ears to hear what God was saying, but he had the capacity to understand what to do about it. He wastes no time. I mean, I love his personality, and maybe because I relate to it. Like, I like to do things, and Paul is a doer. Like, he hears, he senses, he acts. That's just how he behaves here. Paul lived his whole life with intention. Okay, God, no south. You don't want me to go to Asia? Not going. You don't want me to go to Bithynia? Not going. Is it west? Are we going to Europe? I'm game on. We're there. And he totally moved with that kind of intention, that mission, that place. No no doubt, I can just picture Paul as that team journeyed over to uh, Philippi that he's thinking about, who's there? What are these people like? What do they think? What resistance will they offer this gospel that I'm about to tell them? What, what arguments do I need to consider? What, what ways do I need to relate to them? I can just imagine him ginning up all those thoughts. And as soon as he hits the ground of Philippi, he heads out to find somebody to talk to go, about God. That's, that's what he does, totally intentional. And remember, Philippi, according to the text, is a Roman colony, and there wasn't a synagogue, according to Luke, here. Which, if, if you understand Jewish tradition, to have a synagogue, you needed 10 faithful Jewish men. Well, clearly there wasn't even that many. But of the faithful who were there, the, also the Jewish tradition was you were to gather out under the open sky out by a body of water. A river or a sea. So Paul hits the ground and goes, well, there's no synagogue. I know where the faithful will be. They'll be down by the water. So he heads over there to find somebody to talk to about Jesus. Intentional. Thinking it through. Making make a plan. And what he finds here is described in the text is a worshiper of a God named Lydia who was gathering with other women to pray. So Paul, who always lived with intention, wasted no time to get out there and share. Paul, a disciple of Jesus Christ, no different than you and I, intentionally followed the Lord's leading, intentionally sought out the lost, intentionally opened his mouth to tell him the answer, it's Jesus Like not hoping it happens, which I know we all do. Like, Lord, would you open the door? I mean, that's the excuse to try to be somewhat involved, but intentional, like planned for. Paul had a plan, just what I believe every disciple of Jesus should be about. And I want to push against something. When we talk about mission, okay, we typically think about profession. Well, that's their job. Those people who really do mission, they're paid to do mission, right? They're pastors or they're missionaries or they're leaders or elders. That's their job. Well, that's not at all what's happening here. The mission isn't for the professional. It's for professors of Christ, those who profess him, those who call him Lord. That is our, that is our job. That is our goal. And you've heard it said, Paul, Thomas said it many times from this pulpit, pulpit, if you know enough to believe the good news, you know enough to share the good news, and you're going to see how unbelievably simple it is in this example in just a few minutes. Okay, here's how Paul. This is his logic about this issue. How then can they call on the one they have, that have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? How can they hear unless someone is preaching to them? Answer: They can't. <laughs> and it's not for the people who get paid to do it. It's for disciples. People who claim to follow Jesus, the mouthpiece of the good news, to the world. Lesson number four, living the life of a disciple always includes the Spirit's help. I'm so glad this is here. Verses 14 and 15, again, this is Lydia from the city of Thyatira, this wealthy woman, by the way, selling the purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Clearly, Paul was doing the preaching, but who was doing the work, church? The Lord, right? I mean, Paul's lips were moving, but who was working on the heart? The the Lord was doing that. I I read a survey this week. um, I don't know how accurate it is. I don't know how accurate any survey is, but this is by the Lifeway Research Group said of Christians that they surveyed, 80% of Christians they surveyed really believed that they should uh, witness their faith. I have no idea why it's not 100%, but it was 80% of people (laughs) who claimed faith in Christ. But of the 80%, three-quarters of them had never opened their mouth to tell somebody about Jesus. I don't know if that's true, but why do you think it is so difficult for believers? Why are we so reluctant to tell people about the good news? lots of reasons. I'll give you a major one. Fear. What if they don't, what if they don't accept me, right? What, what if the relationships I've built in my neighborhood or at the office, at school, whatever, what if all that friendship just kind of goes for naught if I simply tell them about Jesus and that he's really exclusive in your life and that you're a sinner and you need to be saved? What, what happens if I get rejected? I don't know if I want to deal with the rejection. There's another fear involved in why I think most people don't engage at that level, and that's because they're convinced that they don't know enough. They're not wise enough. They don't know enough to be clear about the good news description. Well, I watched your heads wag when I said, who does the work? And you said, the Lord. You all did that. So I know we know that, but we work and act like we feel like this moment we share with an unbeliever depends upon my wisdom and skill, not his power, right? That's how we behave. So please don't forget this reality, this truth. Yes, we are called, but the power is God's. Amen, church? He takes the people that you would put on a list never in a million years. (laughs) And he moves. God can grasp anybody's stubborn heart. And I know from our perspective this way, we look like some hearts are more stubborn than others. I just want you to know any move on any heart is a supernatural event for God. to Take a dead heart, make it live mine included. So that's what we know. It is, according to the text, the kindness of God that leads anyone to repentance. It's the spirit of God who brings heart change and the disciple's life always has that power available to it. You are not left on your own to witness. You speak a word that is energized by the power of the spirit of God. So have great courage. Here's lesson number five. The disciple's life always includes opposition. Opposition. 16 through 24. As they're going to the place of prayer, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept their practice. The crowd joined in, attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Let's go back to this girl. Interesting what's happening here. The text simply says she had a spirit, an evil spirit of divination. But the word actually reads had a Pythian spirit, the spirit of Python, which according to legend or myth was a snake that guarded the temple of Apollo. So eventually it came to simply, simply mean that demon-possessed person whom through Python would speak, okay, and tell the fortunes of other people. So here she is, this demon-possessed girl who is owned and used by these men to make money for them by telling other people's stories. Here's what you want to know. Here's what you get to know. And so Paul and the team show up, and they're, they're witnessing, they're discipling other people. And she starts crying out, there they go, servants of the most high God. They're the ones who tell you the way of salvation. Sounds like good news, right? Paul gets irritated and says, stop it, come out of her. Now, you could be confused with that, because that, that sounds like good press to me, Right? Like, that's, that's the truth. We do serve the Most High God, and we are pointing the way to salvation. The, the problem is, is what Satan tries to use with things like this. And, and, and just to make it clear, every time Jesus encounters a demon who recognizes him, he has nothing to do with him either. He casts out every one of them. But in this situation, Paul stopped it because Satan is a strategy to derail the good news by aligning with the good news. It's called this diversion of subtlety. It is this idea of distorting True. So if we just throw some words together to describe the adversary, Satan, he's called a liar, a deceiver, and he masquerades as what? Light. He pretends to be something he's not. He gets close enough to cloud the story, and so that's what's happening here. So if the people listening to Paul would connect this woman's actions and words to his, then it would bring credibility to her, and she's demon-possessed, and it would probably distort what Paul's trying to say. So Paul just said, done, we're done with it. Come out of her and stop speaking for us because you don't represent us. And so that's why he puts a stop to it, which, which is a reality here. It, it's, it's our reality. We, we've kind of been in places like this. If I said to you, is Jesus, did Jesus die on the cross for your sins, you would say, yes. Is Jesus God come in the flesh? You would say, yes. We would say lots of things, which some faiths do about Jesus that we'd affirm. But then they would add, small distortions but you need to do these things to have peace with God they've said true things about Jesus but they've added things that aren't real about salvation guess what you have a distortion that equals no life and judgment from God that's why these things are so precise that's why Satan doesn't come out and just say what he thinks he kind of climbs in to join up to distort so that it's just enough to move people off the point okay so as soon as this demon is cast out from this, this girl, the owners lose their mind because they've lost their profit center and they accuse Paul and Silas um, saying he's dis- they're disturbing the city, which isn't true. They're just disturbing their pockets. That's one. Accusing them of bringing some kind of Jewish tradition or customs, which isn't true either. But that's just how it goes. Great example. Anytime God is brought into a godless place, the godless place reacts to God's authority. Every time. And I'm not suggesting to you that it's as bad as it could possibly be, but there's clearly some examples in our life. If you live the exclusivity of Jesus out loud in your world, if you do that, you will be accused of intolerance, I promise you. Because the world wants to have options, the world wants to have ways. The world wants to feel good about their efforts. And when you say efforts don't mount for anything other than judgment because your efforts are measured by the holy standard of God and everyone falls short, therefore, Jesus alone, Jesus alone, therefore, he gets to define your life. What's good, what's what's not good, what's right, what's wrong, morality, all the things that he commands us to. He's God. You lose. And natural man will look at that and go, no, thank you. That's way too harsh. Just to tell you what you probably already know. But the life of a disciple, if he's truly living it out, will know opposition somewhere. I'm not saying how bad. I'm not saying how much. But Jesus made this promise to us. All men will hate us because of him. In John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Don't be surprised. And he makes this clear in Matthew 10. A disciple is not above his teacher. So he suffered. Disciples suffered. We share in that suffering, right? So there's opposition. Don't forget and don't be naive. The disciples' life always includes some form of opposition. Here's number six lesson. The disciples' life always brings joy in spite of circumstances. Verse 25, about midnight again. Now remember, Paul and Silas have just been beaten and they've been brought to prison and chained to a wall. Bad day. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Joy is here. In spite of their circumstances, there is joy. Does it surprise you? I'm okay if it does because it should. This isn't natural. This is supernatural. Because what's natural is, is this, is that we tie our happiness to success or health or wealth or ease or comfort or control. We, we tie our joy to that or our happiness to that, and if anything touches it, we, we lose it. We get grumbly, complaining, sadness, depression, whatever. But when Jesus becomes your greatest treasure, and this treasure can never be taken from you, you can't ever lose your greatest joy. Do you understand? If he is the ultimate prize of heaven and you have him and nothing can snatch it or take it from you, he will never leave you or forsake you, then you have a permanent lasting joy. That's what Paul said in Coloss- uh, 1 Corinthians 4. Therefore, do not, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. James said, I, that's why we consider it joy when we go a trials. God's doing something with it. Paul and Silas sang and praised God because they knew God had called them to Philippi. Paul and Silas praised and sang because they knew they weren't prisoners of Rome. They were prisoners of Jesus Christ. They sang because they knew God would use it in their life and he would use it in the lives of the people they were with. God will use it saying because the disciples' life always brings joy in spite of circumstances. Here's the last lesson, and we're done. The disciples' life is always used by God to bring life to the lost. Let's finish this story, verse 26. Again, now there's in the prison, singing and praising God, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he was just... He was just trying to bring the consequence to himself that Rome would bring to him if he lost his prisoners, okay? He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, opposing that the prisoners had escaped. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, don't harm yourself or we are all here. And the jailer called to the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, get this. <laughs> what must I do to be saved? He's just watching this happen. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus That's it. You'll be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he baptized at once he and all his family then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in in God It was obviously an unusual response to joy. I can just imagine being the jailer in the front of the jail listening to the voices coming from the back like, wait a minute, I just watched these guys get flogged and for doing good and they're singing and praising God in response to an unworldly earthquake that unleashed all these prisoners who didn't run out of jail. Another unusual circumstance. He runs in and asks the greatest question anybody could ever ask. What do I do to get what you have? <laughs> That's unusual. And here's what I want you to know about the profound simplicity of the gospel. Paul, who wrote Romans for crying aloud, he didn't break down and start doing reformed theology. Here's what he said believe in the Lord Jesus. Can you say that? Can you say those words? Do you feel like those words have enough power when you tell them? Are they enough for someone to believe? Because the apostles said it, and it changed the jailer and his family forever. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And that's how God works. He works through this. This messy, unfinished, immature group of people called saints, saved by grace, who go out to answer simple questions like, what do I do to have what you have? And we say something like, it's Jesus plus nothing. And God does some work in a heart and it opens up and it says, I want what you have and I believe what you say. God is the one who works through the disciples. He puts us in our neighborhoods and our jobs and our schools and our hospitals and the places that we go to play everywhere. He uses us to tell them the simplicity, it's the Lord Jesus. Now, I get it. There's profound truth in those two words, Lord Jesus. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's the master of everything. He's in charge. (laughs) He also is the perfect judge. He's the one who's holy. He's Lord. So there's a lot of definition in that, but he is that. So it's simple. Repent because he's that. He's Lord. Believe because he's Savior and be saved because he's good. You've been chasing other goods. Come to him for the ultimate good. And here's what we leave with, okay? This simple call by Paul as a disciple to a jailer who just got done maybe participating in his suffering. Come and be one too. Be a disciple too. Come and replicate too. Come and see the power of God too. See it with us. That's what it means not to be an apostle church. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're disciples, amen? Let's stop and ask for God's help as we follow him. God, I do pray that in these um, examples of Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy, that we would live intentionally. We'd speak the hope of the good news that Jesus saves and forgives. God, give give, give us the perspective and give us the intention to do it, to not excuse what we don't think we know or or the fears that we would justify our, our disobedience, I just pray, God, you'd give us the courage to, to live our faith in such a way that lost people would ask the question, what must I do to be saved? God, save our friends and our family and use us to do it, we pray in Christ's name.